0: Welcome to Good Morning, the podcast on a mission to open up the conversation around grief and loss with honesty and humour.
1: Hosted by Sally and Imogen, we interview interesting guests to hear how losses shape their lives. Join us as we laugh, cry and drop the odd f-bomb.
0: Welcome back to Good Morning. It's a bit of a weird one, um, this intro, because. Such a weird one. <laughs> I've got, I can't see you, Sal. I, know, I feel so lonely. I miss you. So it feels so weird. I've done Im's on the other end of the phone, but we're not in person for this intro because we're in lockdown in Sydney. Well, not the oh, whole of Sydney. You're in lockdown. I'm
2: not in lockdown, you're in lockdown. This is just so weird. Like, we only live about what, about half an hour away from each other in good traffic?
0: Yeah, half an hour away. And
2: you're locked down, but I'm not locked down.
0: It's so strange. So, I it live on the Northern hour. Beaches, which is a peninsula of Sydney. And basically, we've had a COVID outbreak on Friday, the numbers started spiking. So we went into lockdown, and we're in lockdown until midnight on Wednesday. And then we find out our fate, and whether we can, you know, have a Christmas or not, whether we'll be locked down. And Im is in a in west of Sydney. So she's in, a you know, central Sydney, and she's fairly free, free as a bird, really. Haven't got any I can do what I
2: like. Well, kind of. I mean, I went out <laughs> to lunch today, and I felt really guilty for it. But it's just bizarre. And right before Christmas, like, it's just not fair and heartbreaking to so many people. And I am stressing I won't get to spend Christmas. My first one without my mum with my sister on Friday. So we'll just have to wait and see till the, yeah, to see what the new announcements
3: say on Wednesday.
0: Mate, fingers crossed that it's all okay. And shout out to all of our listeners in the UK. I know it's really hard over there at the moment. And we are thinking of you all, especially with the recent announcements around new, you know, lockdown restrictions in the southeast. And yeah, just this year can do one.
2: Absolutely, Absolutely one. do one. But just sending so much strength to everyone that like, we can get through this. I mean, we've got this far. <laughs> How much oh, worse can it possibly get? I get, you know, I don't even want to say that because... Who
0: knows? Aside from lockdown, Em, tell me how oh. your week's been. Um, God, I can't even remember what I've done
2: all week. It's just a blur. I don't know. It's been okay. It's been okay. Better than the last time we sort of caught up properly. I wanted to chat with you, actually. I didn't even get to tell you this yesterday. But I feel like yesterday, so it's been 10 months like this week since my mum died, and I feel like I might have felt a bit of acceptance for the first time yeah right and like it's no way that it's like oh okay cool I accept this great move on with my life it was more so just I had a day where it wasn't at the forefront of my mind constantly which it has been and you know I've been dealing with all of you know the ruminating and swirling thoughts around my head it was almost like I just felt okay you know I didn't feel depressed I didn't feel angry I didn't feel like any other extreme emotion, I just felt okay and I was like maybe this is what the acceptance stage, I know with the stages of grief, they're kind of, you know, they were, the model was built around people in palliative care who are actually dying so, you know, it doesn't always add up for people grieving but I, I feel like, yeah, maybe I felt a bit of acceptance and I feel like for you, I remember you telling me that you were feeling a bit of acceptance. Was it around the same time, around 10 months?
0: Yeah, so it would have been like August, September time. So that would have been, yeah, 10 months ish. Yeah, right? I feel like yeah. it was.
2: I remember that and I think, oh, maybe when I get to 10 months, I might feel that. And I'm actually hopeful that maybe I'm processing and moving into a- another stage or things are getting a little bit lighter. But who knows? Tomorrow might be a different story. <laughs>
0: that's that's brilliant well, I mean just yeah. having even if it's a few days of feeling that slight you know acceptance and calm I think that's a really big step forward for you because I know that it that you have been wanting to have those calmer days for quite a while so and you know what like mm-hmm. you might feel sad and angry tomorrow but you know that there are you can have those moments of acceptance they they might shine yeah. through and I think that is in itself like that's an awesome step forward mate
2: yeah and yeah I just want to let listeners know that as well because Mm. I saw no light at the end of the tunnel like it's been hell Mm. I've been living in a nightmare but yeah yesterday I just had an okay day and so if you're thinking that there's no way you can get through what you're going through mate you can hang on Mm. just hang on trust me you know (laughs) it'll come So if that gives hope to anyone listening, please just hold on to that. And how are you, Sal? You had the anniversary of your mum's funeral, which I know came as a bit of a shock for you. It was quite hard, wasn't it?
0: It was. I actually felt sadder in the lead up to that than I did on the anniversary of her death. And I was actually, it took me by surprise. I think it's because... I wasn't there for her death. Obviously, I was in Australia. So I wasn't there when she passed. And I think the funeral was the... Kind of final goodbye. And I think that's what was making me feel really sad and, you know, griefy because I was just remembering the final goodbye. And, you know, when we said, when we sent her off from this world, basically. So, yeah, I had a few griefy days in the lead up to it. And I really, really felt it. And I was surprised about that because I thought the anniversary of the death would be the saddest day of, you know, of remembering her. But as we all know with grief, it could be a random Tuesday in. February that like bloody
2: unpredictable it might not be
0: you know necessarily a certain day even though you anticipate feeling a certain way and I did feel really sad on the anniversary of her death but I felt uh, more painful sad I think on the um anniversary of her funeral date but yeah who knows I, I might have a really, really griefy day on a random day that's got nothing to do with anything. Just You just don't know, do you? But yeah, it did take me by surprise. I'd love to know if any listeners, I know we did a shout out on Instagram and quite a few people said that they, they find the funeral date hard. But yeah, I think it maybe it is a common thing um, because it is a big day. It's a big, you know, it's a big milestone and losing that, that someone and, and a lot of memories of sending them off from the world. So, so yeah, that was um, a big thing last week and it was the day before... I finished up for the year for work. So I've got a month off, which will be really nice. I haven't really had like a long break since mum passed away. Obviously, I was in the you UK. You haven't stopped. I haven't you have me. not stopped. <laughs> I had a month but... off when I was sorting her stuff out in the UK. That wasn't really a break. No. So I'm really looking forward to it. And I've got all of my spiritual books lined up on my bedside table. So my, all my Laura Lynn Jackson books. I'm very excited to get stuck in. Good. So, Im, tell us who we've got on the podcast today and who we had a conversation with. Guys, this is our last
2: podcast for the year, which I'm feeling a bit sad about, but the time you know, it's been such a nice thing for Sal and I to do and we have had some amazing guests on the show and we have learned so much from these inspiring people we've we've been talking to. So today we've got on the show we're speaking with my best friends, which I'm so excited to get her on. Her name's Elle and she is my rock and she is what I call my grief angel and has been with me every step of the way, since not only since my mum died, but since I met her when I was about 17 years old. And you get to hear all about our underage clubbing adventures, our (laughs) hiding in Ibiza.
0: We did speak to Elle a couple of months ago during lockdown. So if we do reference lockdown that she was in melbourne and it was locked down there during the conversation at the time and before we jump into the conversation with Elle, like im said this is our last episode for the year but we'll be back in mid-january and we've got a really really exciting first episode in fact we've got a really exciting lineup for next year so many exciting episodes i can't wait we wish we could share them with you all now but we're gonna wait and yeah we'll
2: be coming back with a bang
0: but um, yes, yeah, some awesome people, some awesome guests, some very, very interesting and enlightening conversations. So watch this space. But without further ado, let's jump into the conversation with Elle. Oh my God, I'm going to cry already just introducing you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Elle has been a huge part of my grieving process, but not just that, a huge part of my life. She came into my life at quite a difficult time and was just that person that Everybody needs an L in their life, so I was super, super lucky to have crossed paths with you, and yeah, I just, I really wanted to get you on the show, because you've got such a, an interesting story, you're so strong, and I've always admired you for getting through the challenges that you've been faced in your life, and I've always looked up to you, so yeah, I wanted you to share some of your wisdom. She's a grief angel, this one. Oh, thanks. That's
3: such a good intro. I would also like to preface this by saying, everyone needs an Indian in their life
2: too. <laughs> and a Sal. Goes both we
0: ways. We Yeah, we a Sal. Oh, that's such a beautiful intro. And Im was telling me about how you guys met and how much of an amazing support you've been to her throughout you know, the last six months and obviously way before that as well throughout your friendship. But um, yeah, how we so met, we met clubbing. Underage clubbing.
1: Where are you (laughs) at? And whoever says you you can't make real friends clubbing on a night out, (laughs) obviously not going to the right places. Well, none
3: of them are allowed to open anymore. But sure. back in the
1: heyday of Oxford Street, that was supposed to be
0: oh, where yes. I Sydney made all my was... lifelong friends. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I was saying to Im earlier, I moved to Sydney in 2014, and I feel like that was when the lockout laws like happened. So I've never really experienced Sydney when it used to be like vibing. Raging, and my husband always says oh. like Oxford Street used to be absolutely it was filthy, crazy. absolutely filthy.
3: Yeah, exactly. Everyone, every city needs build the location.
0: <laughs>
3: you need to go party and be the worst version of yourself and make lifelong friends. It's oh, very necessary.
0: Oh, totally, totally. <laughs> yeah, I did a lot of the old underage clubbing as well. <laughs> I think what every girl doing? I know does. Totally. <laughs> yeah. So, Elle, yeah. tell me a bit about yourself. Like, where do you live? How old are you? What do you do? So, I
3: live in Melbourne. I actually, I used to live in Sydney and I moved here just before level four lockdown started so I'm very recently moved here so it's actually quite lockdown
1: that's crazy I really did
3: things started to kick off in uh Melbourne and I was literally the only one driving into the storm and everyone else was trying to get out
0: had you like planned to move and you had everything sorted so it was kind of like no going back you just had to get there
3: yeah exactly and I think my personality is very much so when I say I'm going to do something, I just have to do it, which yeah. sometimes works for my benefit and sometimes doesn't. But it's <laughs> that stubborn, I said I'm doing it, and I said I'm leaving at this gate, even though I'm literally moving into the eye of the COVID storm. So <laughs> anyway, um, I'm 31 and I live in Level 4 lockdown, Melbourne. Um, <laughs> it's funny 2020 is really teaching everyone about mm. themselves to the kind of force to faith. something very difficult.
0: I agree with you. It's definitely a pivotal time for a lot of people 2020 has just been you know what a year what a year what a time to be alive I think it's made a lot of people look inwards hasn't it and reassess
3: I mean universally the world hasn't seen any sort of struggle like this where we're all going through it since World War II it's Mm. it's literally affected everyone and you know I work for a company where we have an office in every country basically and every single office is affected Mm. Yeah, but it is. You, you really, I think you kind of see what you're made of when you're forced to. I, I'm alone in an apartment, not allowed to have visitors. My boss is in the apartment building and disabled because we're not allowed to have people coming up. Yeah. And so, yeah, but I think it's just this, you know, will you be a part of the the people that are overeating and drinking and just numbing until it's all over or will you be a part of the the other element where we're really taking... You know, note of this isn't working, this is where I need to.
1: Yeah, being productive with the time as well.
3: Mm. Yeah, and really unpacking what's going on because if you're uncomfortable in your own space, then what are you running from? And then how are you running from it? And then you just continue kind of shedding away until there's these are the changes that I need to make. I would say I'm a little too, because I'm definitely still overeating and (laughs) watching way too much rubbish TV, but I'm also doing online courses.
0: It's a good balance. It's a good balance. Let's be honest; it's a
3: spectrum.
0: It's a spectrum. All about that balance.
1: (laughs) So, L, let's start by telling listeners just a little bit about your upbringing. And it's been a tough. It's been a tough upbringing for you, but I think it's shaped who you are as a person in so many ways. So, yeah, if you feel comfortable talking about it, do you want to sort of delve into some of that?
3: Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't really know where to start. I guess so. My parents split when I was four. Um, and it was a bit of an unusual dynamic because usually when, you know, parents go through a separation, the children will go with the mom. But my mom moved away and my brother and I stayed with my dad. And we had we always had our grandparents really present. So they either we lived with them for a little bit when it all kind of happened and then they always kind of live next door or up the road. So that was kind of my family dynamic. And then, you know, my childhood's filled with like a bunch of happy memories and a lot of love and a lot of time outside and keeping my brother and his friends around much watching the Disney.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> um, but, you know, there's obviously a lot of hardship. So when I, even just having your primary parent be your father and not your mother is – I guess it always gives you a sense of feeling different. So I didn't really know anyone who had the same family dynamic. It was usually a single mom that was raising if there was any single parent dynamic. So there was times where it was obviously, oh, I wish I had a mom a little bit more around. Um, and then when I was 12, so dad was in the building industry and he had a really bad accident. So He was actually a scaffolder. He used to do a lot of rigging. But this one job that he had taken, he was doing roofing for a friend. And I think he fell off the roof. Oh,
2: Um,
3: Yeah. So he fell 10 meters and just wasn't meant to survive. He was pretty much just freak of nature. So it was kind of that initial phone call of this is what's happened. And then it was a difficult conversation of, okay, so your dad's going to die. He's on life support, but he still had some brain activity. So you're 12
1: and when then, this is going on.
3: Yeah, I'm 12. My brother's 14. And then so our grandparents pretty much step in at this point, but they were always very present. And, yeah, we moved in with them really quickly because, you know, obviously dad was in hospital. Um, and we were just kind of preparing for that. Okay, he passed. And then he woke up from a coma. And they said that if he had woken up from the coma, he would have, had no way of really communicating and he would have been, you know, severely brain damaged, but he was speaking in full sentences. Good old strong really... Bobby
1: P. <laughs> strong genes, yeah. good scouse genes.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, good scouse jeans. Is he from the but UK? He was, or? Yeah. He's a scouse. Yeah. So dad, Beautiful. dad, yeah, dad was a scouse, came from, uh, he was a bit of an army brat, so they kind of grew up everywhere. He was born in Berlin no, he was born in Munster. Uncle John was born in Berlin. So my papa was in the army and they moved around a lot. And so a lot of the kids were born in different places. Um, but then he, he grew up in Liverpool. He identified with being a scout and he had that heavy scout accent. And he was really funny and he was character. And he was just one of those people that he could find a of joke in anything. And he was, you know, just, he left home when he was 16. He was all over the world. He had his 16th birthday, no, his 18th birthday in Amsterdam, his 21st birthday in the Middle East, like he was just a vagabond. And so, and I think he was a bit naughty, a bit of a lazy man.
1: (laughs) Um,
3: (laughs) And so when he woke up from his coma, he didn't know where he was and he couldn't remember anyone, but he was thinking his full sentences. He could remember my brother and I, but he thought we were babies. Um, And he thought that he was in... A nightclub in Amsterdam, and that the nurses were waitresses. Oh my god! So, I didn't know
1: that. Yeah, that's amazing. Not, not amazing. you knew it, not amazing. Yeah, like, if you knew Bobby, like it was quite creative. So what was and he doing? Is just, like
0: asking them to like get him get him stuff, or what was he just? Yeah. Well, like I, I imagine that he was.
3: Uh, on a lot of painkillers, yeah. so it was that kind of, uh, I guess, grogginess. But I think if somebody asked, "Do you know where you are?" I think he would have just said, "Yes, I mean, I'm in Amsterdam. You're a waitress, right?" <laughs> 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 he probably tried ordering a beer. Let's be honest. Amazing. Can I get a Heineken? <laughs> and so, yeah, he he pretty much just he surprised the doctors in that notion, and then they said, "So when he had fallen, he it was in that he'd fallen on his uh, legs. so he shattered every." bone in his left foot, both legs were broke severely broken I think he'd broken his pelvis You think he shattered his pelvis and then he had incurred a brain hemorrhage from um, the impact on his head as well but the the head was the last thing to impact the ground which was, thank God or I think he would have died on impact and then they said that he would never walk again because of the damage to the lower part of his body, so over the course of I think it was about a year um, my brother and I lived with Uh, our grandparents which was uh, good because it was in the same area so we didn't really need to change schools or any of those like fundamental parts of our routine we just obviously were dealing with a sick father and then he was in Liverpool which for anyone who's from Sydney we were living in the inner west he was living in Liverpool which is quite far out in a rehabilitation clinic to try to learn how to walk again and he did he when he came home he came home about a year a year and a half later he was in a wheelchair, but he had, you know, feeling in his legs and he had started to build up the muscle again. And then eventually started walking. He had one foot was, uh, one leg was eventually longer than the other just because of all of the surgeries. So he had orthopedic boots and, and a limp, but he was, it's kind of insane that he went from having this, you, you, he's going to die. And if he doesn't die, he's going to have, he's going to be a vegetable and then, Okay, he can speak in full sentences, but he's never going to walk again. And then, you know, he obviously defied all of it. Again, if you knew my dad, he was incredibly defiant.
1: I can see where you get <laughs> He did wasn't somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: you're not going to do this. We'll see. Yeah. So, yeah, he obviously just paid no attention to the doctors. Um, and I think that's a really great lesson in the way of mind over matter. And, you know, if you don't buy into somebody giving you a limit, then the limit
1: doesn't apply. Yeah, you can quite easily give up in in situations Mm -hmm. like
0: that, can't you? That's an incredible recovery. And that must have been so difficult for you at that age. You know, 12, 13, 14 is such a pivotal time when you're growing up and you're changing so much and to have to deal with that. And, you know, it was not like it was over a few months you know it was a over a few years as well and the situation yeah. must have been really challenging to deal with at that age I mean at any age yeah I feel like when you're going through adolescence as well and everything's Absolutely. quite heightened and
1: yeah, the hormones yeah are I kicking think- in. it's like the you know it's our most hormonal stage isn't it we're becoming women yeah
3: yeah the estrogen was a flowing um <laughs> you know I think w- there's always two sides to a coin. So whatever you're kind of handed, you know, there's the light and there's the shadow. And I think, you know, with that experience, it was of course incredibly difficult. But my grandparents were also scouts They're so very funny. Mm-hmm. So our family had a way of just having a laugh. And there was so always laughter in the home. Yeah, like you actually have to find a way to you really do have to find a way to crack a joke. Mm-hmm. And all of my friends have incredible inappropriate senses of humor and that's why my life is so happy and i think it's just because if there's a life lesson in anything stay away from from appropriateness it's just boring and i actually think bad for you i think you know life is just one big woody allen film it's dark and it's real and it's sometimes uncomfortable Mm -hmm. but the undercurrent you can always find something to have a laugh about so i think through that experience, we always had – I think it really helped that I had a big brother. So my big brother uh, kind of led by example. Um, so if he could get up and go to school, then I could too because he was dealt the exact same card. And also having grandparents that, you know, grew up in World War Two. So there's the resilience that you just – it's learned through osmosis. And I think anyone that knows history from England – London was the heaviest bomb city in World War Two, and the second heaviest bomb city was Liverpool because of all of the docks. Mm. So it was all like where they were getting their supplies. And so there's stories from, and we would hear these stories from before the accident happened and just being able to see that they had overcome the difficulty mm. through resilience and family, I think was already given to us. So then when we, you know, had to go through this Experience. we already have that kind of foundation. And then I think it was just, I was listening to this podcast the other day and it was talking about how there's two types of ways that people can identify themselves. And you either identify yourself by family or you identify yourself with peers, uh, with your peers. And your actions are determined by who you identify with and who you're seeking acceptance by. And I think as I moved into being a teenager, it was equal parts difficult but equal parts grounding because I, I truly do think who you are as a child is the most honest version of who you are. You're the most genuine. What you love and what your interests are it's who you are as a child. And then I think when you move into being a teenager you develop this shifting ability which is also part of really figuring out who you are and you've kind of got to dress like your friends and listen to their music and say things that you don't believe and Uh, because you don't know what you believe and you tend to move away from your family. And I think it's, I really do see that we define ourselves more by peers, you know, with social media and everything. And it's really damaging to us, but some most people usually find their way back to their, their families. And I think for me and my brother, we were reminded during this, you know, developmental phase that it's family has to come first. And I think when you define yourself by accepting, being accepted by your family and it doesn't really matter if you're accepted by your peers because it can't matter because this is really heavy what's happening and we all have to band together to deal with it, mm. then you really understand who you are.
1: I think, you, so really, I think you really had to grow up mm. quite early on. Yeah.
3: All. Yeah. Yeah, and I think like, yeah, having to not really, I guess I didn't really experience being a teenager as well because it's that you – are given very adult responsibilities as a child. But it was in an environment that was, it was safe. It always felt safe. It was loving, but it was really hard. And I think children, and I don't think we give kids enough credit. I think that's something that, you know, my friends and I enter our 30s and I have friends that are now having children or have had children quite young. And so those kids are the most interesting because they're actually, you know, eight or nine now. I've realized that you don't actually need to be very babied. It's important to protect your child's childhood, but you, don't, you can t- handle it. And I think there's a difference between having a stressful childhood and having an abusive childhood. And I think uh, when you have a stressful childhood, there's a lot of weight that you carry. And then as you become an adult, you have to find a way to shed the weight, yeah. which is really uncomfortable and something that I still have to go through. But I think if you experience any sort of abuse, it's a massive wound and you have to heal that and it's different. And so I think my brother and I carry a very heavy weight and I think we're both still in the process of trying to uh, kind of shed that weight. I, like, I kind of think of if you have a difficult childhood, you actually have to rehabilitate yourself from it a little mm. and we're still kind of fixing the parts that – you know
1: it's a process we're a little damaged
3: yeah. yeah it's yeah like i'm still i'm definitely still in the process of it because yeah. you well as know, you get I think older the, it
1: changes and you start to identify things that you wouldn't have even noticed when you were younger as Yeah. Well, you know different parts of you are coming out now that you're getting older and
0: i really empathize with you it wasn't the same kind of experience but my brother was really ill in hospital for about 3 years from when i was oh, wow. 10 to 13 and it was like it definitely shaped my teenage years and I became a real tear away and a real rebel. And I think that was my reaction to it. But then lots of different things that happened, you know, in childhood and stuff, it's a kind of only now, I feel like I'm actually starting to process and, and think about how it's affected me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Totally yeah. What was your, what was your brother in hospital for? Oh, you me. Such a long story, but he had like, he, so he was autistic and then he developed like schizophrenia and lots of different. So when autistic boys go through puberty, they can develop lots of different kind of illnesses. Yeah, so, wow. Um, so he was like in a catatonic state and had to go into hospital. And then, yeah, wow. and he, he was like having like hallucinations at home. And like, I remember, I remember him like throwing things at the wall and pinning my mum down because he's like six foot, f- six foot four. Uh, really. yeah. Did- wasn't aware of his own strength so then when he came out of hospital we just couldn't have him at home anymore but we i think we did have him at home for a a few months and my mum was like i can't i can't cope with this
1: you don't realize at the time the impact that that's actually having on on you as well until you kind of step away from it and you
3: you develop these coping mechanisms that get you through it but then are really can become quite toxic Mm. further down the line and you know the tools that you use through childhood even if it's not even too challenging of a childhood but just a childhood in general mm. that you need to find nuance when you get older and I think like one of them I think is privacy I'm you know a deeply private person when I'm going through something I'm actually quite open once a challenge challenging time has come to an end as long as I'm not you know obviously I respect other people's privacy as well so if the other elements of the story wouldn't like me to share then I obviously wouldn't but I think that kind of that came from knowing that a lot of kids my age couldn't handle hearing the story of what was actually going on and how hard that
0: was. So what happened? Um, so after he came out of hospital and he was starting to kind of gain some strength again, then then what happened? Did he make a full recovery? Or no? So because
3: because of the brain hemorrhage, he developed epilepsy. So he started having seizures quite regularly. Actually which was very scary. You know, by this age, you're around 13, 14, and watching your, obviously, I had never been around anyone that had seizures before.
0: My mum was epileptic as well, and I think she slipped and banged her head when she was in her early 20s and it brought it on, but um, I remember when yeah. I was about 10 or 11, she had a seizure, and, and I remember my dad holding her up, but she was staring at me, mm. but, yeah. but, but really loose, and like, because, like, you know, she was like, she'd, She was unconscious, but she was just staring straight at me. And I remember, like, really freaking me out because it's, yeah. Yeah,
3: it is. It's it's quiet. And it's also it's your parents. So there's that, they are your elder, they're the person that looked after you Mm -hmm. your whole life. And then there's that switch of they're really vulnerable and Mm -hmm. that makes you feel unsafe because it's like, I, I have to become the protector now. So the protector and the carer. So in the beginning, those seizures were really... Oh, overwhelming but then mm-hmm. you know you obviously I think I'm very intuitive I think I'm, I'm the kind of person I can pick up on nuances and like energies in a room or how someone might be feeling when everyone else is like oh they seem fine but I think it comes from developing a sensitivity to watching out for if he's going to have a seizure so I became a bit more of a watcher so if he got really quiet or like if he was quite pale or yeah because they the number one to, that would make me question. Dad was always talking. There was always something going on. He's always moving. So then if Dad was still, it was so you know that joke where if you have kids, the worst sound is silence because they're up to something. <laughs> it was like that with Dad where it was if he went quiet or kind of slowed his walk or something, you'd catch, you'd be
1: ready to get like catch him. Basically, I remember so he didn't that. Fall and hit his head. I, was like, I lived yeah. with Elle for how long did I live with you for? About a year. Which time? i oh Remember <laughs> <laughs> the time that we just got back from Ibiza and spent all my money and I had nowhere to live? That time. It was Yeah, just, no, yeah. that was a fun time. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. That's a I, story love I, I haven't stories. told you yet. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to hear. We this were, story. wait, how old? 17, 18. Wait. I was 18. Yeah. We just turned. 18. Hadn't
3: you? I booked the tickets when I was 17, and I just turned 18 before we left.
1: Yeah, and ten of us to go to Ibiza. Flew to across the world to go to Ibiza for ten days. Spent yeah all the money that we didn't have, and then flew yeah. straight home again without seeing any more of Europe. Oh yeah. My cousins
0: <laughs> do when they turn 18. I feel like yeah. we were living parallel lives in different countries, like on the other side of the world. I feel like I would have been in the same camp as you guys back, you know, back in the day. Yeah, yeah.
1: we probably would have invited you to a visa. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Did you have um, a good time. Come though? along. Oh, I don't know. I think yeah. I'm
1: still recovering from it. That was 2006. Yeah, it was a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a visa is like Vegas. In the Mediterranean, you can, you you've got to cap it at two or three days, yeah, 10, <laughs> Ten days, <laughs> oh and God. like three yeah, credit no. cards or something stupid. Anyway, <laughs> after a her, um, I was living with Elle, and I just I remember like we'd be up in your room because it was a two story townhouse, and um, just any time that yeah, it was quiet downstairs, you were just sort of on edge like, is Bobby okay? Got to go down and check dad, I haven't heard of him, so it was you know, it was difficult for you. Like, you couldn't really relax, even though, you know, it was a a safe environment for you. It was still really difficult.
3: Yeah, yeah, there's no, like, off button. So I think that was really, you know, because when you're a kid, you're in your own land, you're daydreaming and you're thinking about, you know, Boys. your own selfishness.
0: Yeah.
3: <laughs> oh, no, I was always thinking about it
0: And how, um, often, how often was he having seizures? Was it like a couple of times a day? Were they quite quick, like in terms of... The, the recovery. Or- yeah, well,
3: yeah, they would, it would pretty much be daily. Yeah. I think, yeah, at least once a day. It's a, during this time, you know, I think when you go through a really difficult accident, like what my dad went through, because he had a brain hemorrhage, he developed epilepsy, which means that he couldn't work in the building industry anymore because you can't be working out with power tools or like up high, which is what he would do before with epilepsy. And I think you can. I think it's like driving if you. If you develop epilepsy, but you go a certain amount of time without having a seizure, then you could potentially be put back into the workforce mm. or be given a license to drive. But that wasn't the case with him because they were happening so regularly. Mm. And then he had short-term memory loss, so he couldn't be retrained into doing anything that didn't, that wasn't a physical job, which is all he had really known. He was always, you know, a man that worked with his hands. So I think that stripped away a lot of his identity. So he you know, was always really handsome. He was always really fit. He was always really funny. He always had these incredible stories about how he lived all over the world. Good
1: stories. He, he had a good, good story. Always had a good story.
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he had stories every lot. So if you're in new person,
2: yeah. you tell the You hear that story, story like 20
1: times. And you're <laughs> like, yes, Bobby, I know that. you tell me that like 20 times. He's like, like, shut I'm up that. and let me finish. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so... But I think that was all taken away from him and I think it takes a profound amount of strength and support to be able to rebuild and I don't think he was able to. So he started drinking and I think that was hard.
1: Yeah, that was hard for you. And I think it's hard for anyone dealing with a parent with an addiction on top of all the other stress Mm that you're, you're dealing with. But one thing I really admire about you is the way that you handled your dad's addiction, L. If you want to tell the listeners about how you did sort of handle it, because I know it was starting to become such a problem that you started to resent your dad and you didn't want to be around it and it was really impacting your life in a negative way and then that was the repercussions of that was affecting your relationship with your dad. But then you took an approach on it that I think really helped your relationship.
3: Yeah, I think, well... <sighs> For me, I think also, there's a lot of people that don't understand addiction. And I think it's not a choice. It's never a choice for somebody to, you know, numb themselves through alcohol or drugs. It's just there's something else in them that they don't have the ability to, to deal with. So they just need to to numb that. And it's, it's just a pain. So I think from when I was 12 until about 16, I didn't really you know, there's no way that I could have understood that. I was way too young. So I would just get really angry. So basically whenever my dad would open a beer, I would get up and walk out of the room because I felt like sitting next to him while he drank meant that I was supporting it and that I was okay with it. And I felt like I was facilitating the addiction if I if I didn't protest it. And then I got to about sixteen And I just got sick of it. I got sick of being so angry with my dad and resentful with him and just, you know, unapproachable with him as soon as he would start drinking. And so, um, and the thing is, is my dad was always a really soft natured person. He wasn't a violent, uh, angry, you know, drunk. He was just, he was always really gentle. He was just tipsy. So, and I, you know, if I look back at it now, it actually was like a bit of a medicine, but it's, it was the other way he kind of could have gotten through the day, so it is what it is. But I think I was just so sick of being angry, and it it wasn't you know a I'm going to make change moment. I was still too young. I think it was more just a I was tired, and so yeah, just this one day, Dad opened a beer, and I just sat there and just kept watching TV. And then he was kind of looking over at me. Like, <laughs> are, like are you going to leave the room now? <laughs> did she see? Yeah. Did she know that I was drinking? It was almost like, well, you know, if anyone's ever taken care of a parent, you do really see a role reversal. So it was almost like I was the parent and he was, you know, the first time a kid opened a glass of wine in front of their parents or something like that. It was this real kind of moment where he was not getting in trouble. It's just weird. And then I just let it be. And I think... Through through that, I, like the level of acceptance that I was able to come to where it's just, this is a part of my dad now and it is what it is. We were able to have a close relationship and a really nice relationship. And it even got to a point where my dad and I were mates. Like I could take him to the pub. We could have a beer together. I stopped making him feel guilty. And I think that was really good for the soul. Mm-hmm. And I think the lesson... That I was able to kind of take from that was you just can't change people. Mm-hmm. And you can never make someone else's mind up for themselves just because whatever they're doing isn't good for them. And then you can exercise acceptance and empathy for someone who's going through a tough time. It actually makes their decision makers making a little healthier. Mm-hmm. So because dad wasn't just sitting alone drinking anymore, or you know, my brother was less like that so he would obviously keep in company but I still think it helped with my dad living longer in the long term because he wasn't isolated. He was still he still needed a number and that's okay. But I I do think he may have actually drank less. I do think that he had a certain quality of life in those last few years because, you know, he didn't have a kid that never forgave him for drinking.
0: That wasn't an option.
3: So it was, yeah, it was a good lesson. It was a good lesson for me. And I think it was, I'm really glad that I was able to do that. Because I know sometimes if your parent is your hero or you there with a person that always kind of had it together and then you watch them go through that decline and you watch them succumb to something, then I understand why a kid wouldn't forgive their parents. But I'm glad that I could.
1: Yeah, I think as well, you know, your dad was such a people person and just having someone around to have a chat to, it's <laughs> all he wanted. You know, he just wanted yeah. to make people laugh and have a good time and I think having made that decision, it gave him the room to just be who he was and, yeah, see out the rest of his life with his family around just having a laugh because that was Bobby, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah,
3: yeah. exactly. That's why we always had friends coming and living. Le- yeah. Their house. <laughs> it was an open-door <laughs> policy at their house. <laughs> Yeah, and it's so funny because he yeah, had short term memory loss, genuinely didn't remember anyone. So every day that, because my, bro- my brother also had my sister in law who came and lived with us as well. So it was just this at one point, we're all just living in the house and he's like, unless it was my brother or me, he had no idea who they were. He's like, who are you? All right, I know you kind of live here. You seem like you know where everything is. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> Oh, was it was great. just a joke. It was hilarious. We'd all sit in the lounge room and have a glass of wine together, or watch QI. You know, it's just, it's amazing what's on the other side of just letting go. Just let go. You're not going to get anything. Life from being is so angry short.
1: It's so short. And as we all know, because you know we've all unfortunately lost parents at quite a young age, life is fucking short.
0: Pick your battles, and
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the thing as well
3: is no one responds to anger well. <laughs>
1: No. Like, no one's going to respond to you resenting them. And I think and that, those sort of emotions as well, they're not hurting anybody except for yourself, really. Mm-hmm. Like you were just holding it all in and making yourself sick even, just mm-hmm. holding on to all that resentment yeah. and anger. It's not healthy.
3: It was around that age. I think I really started to make my lifelong friends. You know, I think I'm going to couple lessons through, but it's not really where my heart lies. The people that I have in my life now, the flow started to happen, when I just let go. And when I was 16, I experienced really great changes. I think, you know, it was, it was, I think it was around the time that my papa had passed away as well. So Nana and Papa were massive sorry get in our life. They were really important to us. And, Losing Papa, he passed away. Yeah, I was 16, like 15, 15,
0: And I think
3: it kind of jolted me into something like, you really can lose people. They're not coming back. Yeah. Um,
0: that realization. And I,
3: yeah, I think, you know, I really do think loss emotionally matures you. And I think, you know, my brother and I obviously were grounded and, and had to grow up really quickly with dad's sickness, but I don't think it was until Papa's passing that I emotionally matured enough to be able to forgive and let go, you just, it humbles you. So so I guess I made the turn when something else also difficult kind of happened. And then there's a lot of really interesting experiences that started happening in my life. I just started meeting really lifelong friends. I started learning important lessons. It really started my process of introspection and self-development and, and really understanding that your choices can determine everything, not your circumstances.
0: Which at 16 is pretty pretty amazing that you kind of were starting to discover that. I feel like that's something that a lot of people don't really start to think about or discover until they're in their late 20s. Well, sometimes people never even get there either. Yeah, so to have that sort of, you know, awakening of sorts when you're, that age is is really incredible and they do say don't they that grief can be a pivotal time for a lot of people it can really it, you know it's a time of self-reflection but people can you know change their lives yeah. and welcome new things in because it does make you realize life is fragile and what do I want to do with mine yeah I think so and
3: I think you know I've always said this but your pain is your prize it's the mm. thing that makes you different it's mm. the reason why you know, somebody may have a preconceived notion of you and then they meet you and they're like, oh, wait, what? So, and I love that when someone thinks that I'm somebody completely antithetical to who I am and then I tell them not even my whole story but just a snippet of it and then there's this moment of, oh, you know, I, I don't think I'm really going to forget this conversation anytime soon, thanks. And, you know, you can get to a really real level with people and you're so humbled by tragedies that it's just it's a lot harder to be, governed by ego and to be difficult and to, you know, be it's impossible for me to be competitive with friends or not wish them well or not be protective over them because they're my lifeline. Mm. <laughs> they kept me alive through – because the thing is, is you're only as good as your support network. So, mm. yes, I've gone through half times, but I never did it alone. There's always, you know, unsung heroes along the way. And I think – you know, going back to the most people wouldn't have reached that conclusion or less than at 16. Because I think your emotional wisdom starts when your suffering starts. So if your suffering starts a lot earlier, then by the time you reach certain ages, you, you know, you do have this emotional intelligence and knowledge that you can pull from. Mm -hmm. It's just a delicate balance of making sure you're not damaged. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because you really can, you know, the water that, hardens the egg, softens the potato. It's kind of like, which way are you are going to go? You can sink or you can rise. So I think if anyone is listening to her, if they just walked from one, or even if they're just dealing with a family sickness or something, I think it's just try to make make sure that you're surrounding yourself with the right people. Make sure that you have people that you can fall apart in front of, and I think you'll be okay.
0: So important and I don't know about you guys and but it sounds like it's, it has been the same for you that since since experiencing loss I've definitely taken a reflection on friendships and there are some friends that haven't really shown up and I'm kind of like you know what that's cool you're on your own journey but I, I know who which friendships to prioritize now and kind of w- what kind of friends and people I want in my life and it sounds like that was a, a point of reflection for you as well or you kind of Changed your friendship groups and kind of met, you know, welcome people into your life that were a support network for you and helped shape kind of the rest of your journey.
3: Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny. Um, there's a certain scene in Sydney, you know, when you grow up in Sydney, you see that there's all different kinds of clips and scenes, and there's a particular scene that I feel, you know, you really see people kind of went to and lost themselves a little, and it's, you know, the cool kid parties and the like, going to places to be seen and stuff. And, you know, it was tempting, tempting to follow those friends into those scenes mm-hmm. and become mixed up in them. But I think I knew that I wouldn't, you know, because I have friends now that say, you never got mixed up in those scenes. You never really cared. And like, kudos to you. But I don't think it was strength that stopped me from joining toxic, clicky scenes. I think it was knowing I'm not going to be strong enough to deal with this nonsense mm-hmm. while dealing with this stuff. So, I think just innately, I surrounded myself with people like him that were just real and good, and then you're good.
1: <laughs> so you. I think, yeah.
3: <laughs> so there was a hidden, there's hidden gems in that. My brother's the same. My brother has really good friends. He picks his people well, and I think uh, I just I remember sitting in school and looking at the nonsensical arguments. And I just never got involved in the drama, but it wasn't because I was above it or more mature than it. I just didn't have capacity. I didn't have any need to deal with that as well as everything at home. Mm-hmm. So I just needed to keep things peaceful as possible. Mm-hmm. And then if you have a habit of putting peaceful, healthy relationships in place, you know, everything is temporary. So if you're going through something really tough and you're carrying something really difficult, eventually it will start to subside eventually it will start to fade away but those healthy and calm environments that you created for yourself not in the beginning help you just survive but then they really help you thrive like you, anyone that I know that has that oh my god I'm not okay I need good people around me and then they get above the water they actually tend to be the people that are the most inspiring they're the people that actually have the most interesting stories of success and I think it comes from I can't deal with people that pick on others. I can't deal with people that aren't nice or petty or looking for drama. So they just innately choose really good, inspiring people.
1: I think you definitely taught me to, like, be a better friend. When when I, when you came into my life, I was at a time where I was sort of off the rails a bit. I was going through a lot of just difficult hardships at home. Yeah, I just remember you, like, teaching me what it's like to be a good friend because I just – I hadn't learned it. And I, I had – You know, I had friends but I didn't have a best friend and, yeah, so Mm. that was – I think it's really important to to find someone like on your level that, you know, can support you through everything but it's also a really healthy relationship. So you always wanted the best for me and you always, you know, wanted to make sure that I was okay and I'd never really had that before. So thank you for being that part of my life.
3: Yeah, I mean, you are the same though. It's it's literally – if you come across a friend that really genuinely cares about you, it's just so bloody nice. Mm. And I think, you know, there's such a difference between girls and women. But, you know, you see so much disappointing behaviour between females. And so if you can – because the thing with Emma, she's so wide-eyed and, like, kind and good that she wouldn't have it in her to be, you know, competitive or mean or jealous or any of that nonsense. Mm. So, you know, it's like – yeah, you taught me how to be a good friend, but you you came as a good human, and then it was just a matter of like, hey, can you not take my shirt, wear tan, and then leave it on the floor when I wanted to wear it on Saturday? <laughs>
1: Don't drink my rice milk or whatever that shit milk was that you drank. <laughs> Don't drink my rice milk. So foul. When you said you weren't going to open it, <laughs> and you opened my rice milk. <laughs> yeah, we sort of came to the understanding that we can't really live together. We're like no, best we can't of live friends, together. but temporarily we can. But. No, gotta love you from a distance. In a long term, I'm, yeah. Yeah, I like to say, you know, the the thing that
3: you know he brought to my you. life is when I had way too many boundaries. It was the whole thing about when it's so hard, you just put up all the walls. I
2: have,
1: I still have to. Literally, a bigger wall than Trump would like to build. You had built yeah. yourself. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's still coming down, but
3: we're getting there. But I, you know, I would come from a place of know a lot, you know. It's just I can't on my capacity. I just can't. I'll stay until ten, and then I've got to go and make sure dad's cool. Like this was just a pattern. Even when I was in a, a visa, I was still trying to find a phone to call dad. Okay, you know, there's that's never this a, like
0: just that's a lot. Uh, it's a heavy load to bear, isn't it? Especially when you're in your late teens, early twenties, and your peers are probably all carefree, and it's it, that's a lot, and so. What happened with your dad? Did he continue to, to stay in that same holding pattern? What did the next few years look like? Yeah, you know,
3: my brother and I were really good at tag teaming. Yeah. Um, and my brother's wife now, she played a really big part in you know, facilitating and helping. She's incredible. She had a real deep love with my dad as well. So I think it was just, uh, yeah, we stopped being kids and we actually were young adults. My brother joined the Navy and so he would then go off to sea and my sister-in-law would, you know, check in and make sure Dad was okay. He then moved out for a time. I moved out for a time. It was always kind of someone with Dad at home. And then when I was 25, I decided I wanted to move to London. And, yeah, it's so funny how timing worked, but it was almost perfect that it was happening at this time. But I always did feel like this was happening. Whenever I tried to find something big for myself, something huge would happen with Dad and I'd have to not it. So uh, it was the lead up to going to London and dad started collapsing but it wasn't seizures. So especially if your mom was epileptic you'd know that there's this incoherence that washes over them as soon as they start having any sort of seizure and then they're also like that for a few minutes after having one mm. and then you just have to sit with them until they can start speaking in sentences again. And he started collapsing. This is funny, I, this reminds me of, I have a trigger and my trigger is Something so if there's a thump, it actually like oh god, something bad's happening.
0: I can imagine. I was like,
3: Yeah, yeah, there's this run, like run, is he okay? Uh, I was, it was only a month or two ago, and I was reminded of this trigger because you know, dad passed three years ago, so I haven't been dealing with this for years, Mm -hmm. but I was like, Oh my god, I can't believe that's actually traumatizing to me. But somebody had a rolled up carpet and they thumped it on the ground and like survival it was like and I, I, I literally fight or flight like adrenaline it took, mm. yeah it took so long to just calm down and I was like wow this is actually a little PTSD-ish but anyway so dad started collapsing but he was collapsing and was fine and so you know you'd go downstairs and you pick him back up again and he would just start talking to you and I'd say did you have a seizure or did you flip over and he said, no. And he just assumed that he was having seizures. And then there was this one really scary moment. So I was standing in the kitchen. I was working from home that day. And dad got back and it was quiet downstairs. So i he was just the loudest person in the world. He had the, like, he was just the kind of person, he'd have the TV on here and he had the radio there. He'd be speaking really loudly. He'd be on the phone to anything down. He was just that kind of like, if Bobby's in the house, you know. <laughs> so I heard the door go, and I was like, all right, come in. And then it was quiet. And, it, you know, you're typing away, and then 10 minutes later, you're like, nothing is on. So I went downstairs, and he was sitting on the couch. And he was just kind of like still, and he was never still. And so I was like, are you okay? And he started holding his heart. And I was, I was saying, um, and I said, are you, what's going on? He said, and he started squeezing hands, his hands. He said his hands hurting, but it was his left hand. And he was holding his chest and I genuinely thought he was having a heart attack because he didn't live the healthiest lifestyle. He literally lived on bacon and beer. And, I mean, I, I wish I could too. But so then I called the ambulance and I was like, hey, I think I think my dad's having a, a heart attack. I'm not too sure. And I don't know why because we used to live pretty close to Canterbury Hospital. It took them nearly an hour to get to us. What? So it went – yeah, it was hard. I kept calling back. I was like, what's going on? Because it, I think I was on the phone for ages and he didn't really have any answer symptoms, but he did have the symptoms of having a heart attack. It was really confusing. But then it w- eventually got to, you know, he was then lying down and I thought he was dying. I genuinely thought he was dying on the couch in front of me while I was on the phone to the ambulance. And I was thinking, this is how it, really, this is how it ends? And then... About 10 minutes later, he just sat back up again and I was just so confused. And I said, like, are you – what's going on? Are you okay now? And he said, I think so. <sighs> yeah, I think I'm okay. It was bizarre. Oh and then God. the ambulance eventually got there. It was so, it was just, you think someone's dying in front of your eyes and then it goes back to, yeah, so – We're not good. What should we eat for dinner? <laughs> like, literally, what? what? And then – Ambulance came, and I was relaying exactly what happened, like watching a heart attack, but he was fine. And so they were looking at me really oddly, and I was just saying, I wish you got here earlier yesterday. You said, Steve, it's taken over an hour, and now was fine. Can you just take him into the hospital? Took him into the hospital, couldn't find anything, sent him home. He had a weak body by then. He was always in and out of hospital because of everything anyway. Um, and then he, uh, it started happening again, and this time he had a bad spell, and... The ambulance came to see it, and they could see he wasn't okay. And this was all happening about a month or two out from me living abroad. And my brother didn't live at home, and, you know, he lived down the road, but there was this, you know, we were talking to the doctor, and he said, he's probably not going to live much longer. He's not going to make it to next year. And this was in June 2015. And I just remember thinking, well, I can't leave in my last in the last months of my dad's life, so I guess I'll just cancel. And then, um, well, yeah, we managed to – it was actually Amy's mom who came, um, and she – so I didn't know this, and anyone who has someone in hospital should know that there's always a resident – Social um, worker? Social worker, yeah. So there's always a ward social worker, and so – they put me in touch with the ward social worker and they were saying, this is all the support that we can provide your dad if you decide to go. And I was still a no because he's going to die. Mm. And then he started responding to the medication. And a very small amount of people respond to this cardiomyopathy medication. It's either that or they put a defibrillator in your chest. Mm. And his body couldn't handle a defibrillator. So if this medication didn't work, he would have passed very quickly. So, Which, like you um, said, Sal,
1: is you know, an expat's worst nightmare mm. living on... In another country, yeah, you know, getting that call, yeah,
3: exactly. And I was like, "Well, I'm not missing out on this time left with him." The doctor even said I wouldn't want to make this decision for you, but you know, it is what it is. And then it was just so weird. Within a month, he was just back to doing his normal routine, and the medication worked, and he was fine. It was weird. Yeah. So then, off I went to London, and I lived in London. I came back, and then you know, a couple months later, I moved to Vancouver, and I three months to living in Vancouver is when my dad actually did pass away. So I got a phone call that my friend says I got a phone call from my sister-in-law. I was at work. And she said, your dad's in the ICU. He's had a bad, he's had a seizure and he hit his head quite badly. So I'm just letting you know that he's in ICU, but we'll let you know how he goes because There was so many times where Mm. doctors would be saying, "Your dad's gonna die," and then two weeks later, he was outside, fine, having a cigarette.
0: So you didn't know. like, it's hard to judge, right? Whether it's the the time or whether he'll bounce back or have
1: another year or another two years, you just have no idea. With Bobby, did you?
3: No, and that's the thing as well is I feel like it's such an emotional roller coaster when you go through an illness with someone where it's just like, "Oh, this is it." No, it's not. This is it. No, it's not. Mm. So. I was, um, okay, so I guess I'll wait and we'll see how it goes. And then I think two days later, I was at a friend's place and she said, you need to get here. Like, can you get on the plane five minutes ago? And it was at night time, And then so I was literally on the phone, booked a flight, uh, wrote an email to my managers basically saying, I don't know what I'm going to be back. This is what I'm dealing with. I don't even remember the plane ride over at all. I couldn't tell you how I got to the airport, what that flight looked like, which is a long flight. Mm, such a um, it was an absolute blow. It was just going into this survival mode. Mm. I, I couldn't even – I don't know how I even packed my suitcase. But so then got back to Australia. Uh, my sister-in-law, my brother's in the Navy, so when everything was happening, he was taking a lot of time away from being at the base and he was going through exams. So he couldn't – spend a lot of time in the hospital as soon as I came I took over so my brother and I would always take shift with dad and I knew that I was like you've done everything I'll take over from here so my sister-in-law and I went to the hospital and then explained what they were doing in order to keep him alive for me to get there and it was horrible so basically they had to put um, a respirator in his esophagus, but every time you pull it back out it would bleed and it was making it more and more painful for him. So oh, gosh. then I had to go into a room with a social worker, a nurse, and my sister-in-law and call my brother on the phone, and we had to decide to take him off life support. Oh, and
0: man. then I
3: think three days later, he passed.
0: So hard. Yeah. It's a hard, hard decision to make. And what was going through your mind at that time, you know, when you were faced with making that decision? Because, you know, it's, it's huge. It's huge. Yeah. How, you know, what was the thought process? I think I, I remember feeling
3: really weird being in a little room yeah. with a social worker and a nurse making this decision um, and having to you, because my father and I were the executives, like we were left in charge to make those choices. I think do you remember we spoke about before. When you go through a loss like this, it really crystallizes your relationship. Mm-hmm. I think for me, was wow, we really don't have any parents, do we? Yeah. It just it felt like, because I think at this point I was 27 and my sister in law is the same age. And I just remember sitting there with, you know, a social worker and a nurse, and they were both probably in their 40s, and thinking, we're the kids.
1: Yeah.
3: And we're having to make. These decisions for him on whether he like lives or dies, mm-hmm. and then listen listening to them talk about. Okay, so this is what it's going to look like. You know, give him a private room.
1: It's such a a big responsibility, and you've already been through so much. I wonder. I
3: wonder if the, the you know the hard with
1: dealing with the sickness and
3: so many conversations with doctors and nurses. Uh, I guess in a way prepared us for that as well though. You mm-hmm. know, hospitals weren't a foreign place to be you know yeah. especially when dad was first uh first woke up from his coma. He was in St Vincent. So my brother and I both my brother went to Concord. I would to go it was just like in a west our routine was go to school, then go to the hospital and do our homework next to Dad and then go home. So it wasn't. It wasn't necessarily the sitting in the hospital, and because I know I hear people's experiences, and that's a really jarring process. I think it was more just, uh, wow, we really are the grown ups now, aren't we? There's no one to lean on. You know, Nana and Papa were gone, and all of our
1: uncles and aunts were overseas, and like we just didn't have a mum. So, I know for for Sal and I, our parents' deaths were were quite a shock, like they weren't expected at all, but because your dad had been quite ill and I guess his death was inevitable in some way, do you feel like that you might have started to grieve him before he died? I was actually quite surprised at how difficult
3: it still was after losing, losing dad because I had anticipated that it would be, I guess, just easier to accept because... You know, from when you were twelve, there's a, a something in your, it's something in your mind constantly saying, "I can't be too far away from home for too long because Dad might pass away." And so, I ha- I I definitely had grieved the person that he was before the accident. Yeah. So he had to change so much after the accident that the dad that we had pre-accident was gone, and we had grieved him, but then he become something else
1: yeah, that so we like had taken care of. Different stages that you kinda of got used to and yeah. then you had to grieve that stage of, of your dad. Yeah. And then you know, it turned into a new stage and
3: Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, dad was self sufficient and still there at the end, even though he was sick. He was still was talking to your dad. So I definitely had gone through dad's gonna pass away, you need to come to terms with that. Does that come to terms with that? but I was surprised how hard it was Mm. after he passed away, even knowing what I knew for for years. thinking you were prepared
1: mm. for
3: it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the thing in life is it's such a trick. You know, you really can – yourself into thinking I'm doing everything I can to prepare for this but you just you have no control over your emotions and your love for people no matter what it's just it doesn't make sense
0: and I think even when it's a death that you're preparing for when they're gone it's still such a shock isn't it because even you can prepare mm. you know and 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 you know it's coming but I think still that feeling of loss and and the acceptance that that you know they were once alive and now they're not and it's that's it. I think that's a really mind boggling thing to get your head around.
1: I think, yeah, I think for you as well, do you, if you agree with me, I think having had to have been, you know, one of your dad's primary Mm -hmm. carers for such a long time, and then losing him, did you feel like you were sort of a different version of yourself? Like, who am I without that responsibility? I think,
3: you know, it's funny because I've always really identified with being, you know, super grounded and the friend that's there for people and, you know, very private. And I probably the, the first year after losing dad, I remember thinking, was that really me or was that part of my identity that I had to create to be there for somebody? And I, and I started to make... I consciously started to make choices that Aldell wouldn't have done. So just spending time with people that weren't very kind or and not terrible people, but just a little more lost. And I was just, okay, yeah, sure, let's all go to the bar and have fun. And I really spent time with people that I never would have spent time with before. And then I had my core group of friends in Vancouver that were exactly like, all with my friends anywhere in the world, they're all just strung with the same belief system. So I think there was a a certain certain part of myself that I really had to question. Is this? You, it's a loss of identity when you kind of lose the person that you're caring for. Mm. And then who am I without this? Am I as grounded, or was this grounding me? You know, um, am I as private, or was this making me be private? Mm. So, and I think one of the, the biggest things is when you are taking care of someone, you're in survival mode, um, you have to be really decisive, especially when it's, you have to make choices based on their medical choices. So my brother and I would always be the decision makers. My dad would literally say to the doctors, I don't know, ask them, they'll choose what medication you go on. And I think through that, I developed this really stubborn, one-minded way of, dealing with things because you have to but through I think not having to be that anymore I think I've managed to realize that I was actually quite judgmental before and I was a little too stubborn and that's something that I could take off my plate yeah but I don't think I'm that different then I don't know I
1: wouldn't wouldn't say you are like from an outsider's mm -hmm. perspective um you're still very much the same centered grounded good kind person yeah. you always were but yeah it's, it's an interesting because I know I, that people do like when they are caring for their parents and their parents pass away they do lose their identity I think mm-hmm. that is quite a common experience
3: I think I definitely went through a phase where I wasn't as centered and I wasn't as grounded I was going way more you know I was trying to forget you know what I was kind of going through I had no one there that was kind of the, the emotional support network I was three months into being an expat in a new country halfway across the world it was no one was holding me accountable for being healthy and I wasn't being healthy. And then I think I came home and my friends had really seen a change in me. There was this like, I don't know if I was okay. I was going out a lot more. I was, I just, you know, and I wasn't carefree. I just didn't I just give running, a shit. Running
1: away from it a bit, I guess.
3: Yeah, it was just like keeping really busy and like stuff that, you know, before I was actually really okay with sitting with myself, I think I'd honestly let outside influences kind of just discombobulate me a little. Mm. And then when I got home and I shared all of that, I think there's things that I've shared as well that were, you know, I think I am less stubborn and I think I can listen a little bit more, you know, like there was parts of my personality that were really difficult to deal with because mm. I was that person that had to be the stable grounding that I think has gone a little... Mm. But I can unequivocally say that my identity isn't any different now, that I I am who I am and I was the same, Eleanor, going through that, that I am now.
1: That's amazing. You're truly an inspiration to me and I'm sure a lot of listeners are going to benefit from hearing your story, Elle. I feel like we could go on all night, to be honest. I could sit here and (laughs) listen to
0: your story like for hours. You're amazing, Elle. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat. I
3: think what you've created and what you're creating is a really good platform for people. And to, if I could have had something like this to listen to in that first year of being discombobulated, it would have really helped me. So I think this is a good space. Thank you for having me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> um, Elle, is there anything that you would, just a little bit of advice that you would give to someone going through a similar experience that you went through with your dad that might help them? I, I honestly think... For anything in life, you just have to be
3: really careful with who you surround yourself by. Mm. And whether it's somebody that's going through what I went through, or you guys went through, or even isn't going through loss at the moment, they just found this really interesting and they're deciding to listen to it. Mm. You just have to be really careful with the company you keep. And I think as long as you surround yourself with good people, you can get through anything. So, good advice. Life's going to be tough, life's going to get, life will punch you in the gut. So who's going to be around to help you when that happens? And as long as you know that you really do have good people around you, then you'll be fine. And also make sure you're that for people as well when everything's going well for you because you will get hit in the face too.
1: (laughs) And I do think as well for people that – that don't have support, because I know mm-hmm. there are some people out there that find it difficult to connect with people or, you know, for circumstantial reasons. There is loads of um, help online. I know, you know, online support groups, Facebook groups. So reach out. If if you're feeling really lonely and you, mm-hmm. you're struggling to find that support, um, try and connect with people, yeah, through some support groups. But thank you so much, Elle. Um, it's been an absolute yeah. pleasure chatting to you. We could get carried away, but yeah, we're gonna to have to wrap it wrap it up a little bit, there, unfortunately. <laughs>
0: Thanks, yeah. So much. Thank you so much for having me.
1: All right, good luck in lockdown.
0: Well, I think that takes us to the end of this episode. Elle was absolutely amazing. She's a gem, and isn't she? So inspiring. I can't yeah. imagine having to go through that in your you know, in your teenage years. It's so huge and she's a real tough cookie, that one. That's a wrap for the year. Can't believe it's the end of 2020, although very glad to see the back of it. We are going to be back on the 22nd of Jan with our next episode and our first episode for 2021. Can't wait to share with you
2: Feels like so far away. I know it
0: does, but to be (laughs) honest, like bring on 2021, hey? I think everyone probably feels that same way.
2: Yeah, praying that it's a better year than this one for all of us and coming into Christmas, guys, not going to say have a Merry Christmas, because for us grieving, it's not really merry. So have a Christmas and we'll be thinking of you all and sending lots of strength and love. And yeah, we can't wait to come back and connect with you all again in the new year.
0: Huge, huge hugs to everyone. And just remember to be kind to yourself. Take any you know expectations off yourself. Just honour your feelings and just go with the flow and remember that it's okay to not feel okay. And just be gentle and kind to yourself. And yeah, we'll speak to you guys in the new year.